Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast. This is an election year. Will Donald Trump be re-elected? What is going on with the Democrats? And has America gone even more crazy? We'll be discussing all of these things and more, more than once a week, because we don't feel you have enough Americano in your life. And I have a special offer for Americano listeners. If you want to subscribe to the Spectator's US edition, which is brilliant, by the way, I edit it, you can go to www.spectator.us forward slash subscribe and take advantage of our special Americano offer. If you insert the code Americano in capital letters like Donald Trump on Twitter, you will get 5% off. Please do so. I'm joined today by John Levine, and he is a reporter on the Democratic race and the 2020 election for the New York Post. And we're going to be talking about the end of Pete Buttigieg's campaign. Now, John, yesterday we had this news that Pete Buttigieg was stopping his campaign. I suppose it's not that much of a surprise that he's not going to be the Democratic nominee. However, it is surprising quite a few people that he was the first of the major candidates, if you like, to drop out. Were you surprised? I was. I mean, I was certainly not. First of all, it's good to be here, Freddie. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming on. I was surprised. If you look at sort of who has a right to stay in and who really should be considering dropping out, he would not have been first on my list for who should go. I mean, he pretty much fought Sanders to a draw in Iowa. And then he had respectable showings. Uh, He had a very respectable showing in New Hampshire. He narrowly lost New Hampshire. And then, you know, obviously later races got more difficult for him. Hmm. But you look at someone like Amy Klobuchar, whose most impressive performance was a third place finish, I believe, in New Hampshire. And, and, and people called that a comeback, which shows you sort of the bias of low expectations. <laughs> Elizabeth Warren has, has, I mean, I think she also might have placed third in one contest and that's it. So I I certainly would have thought that they would be the ones reassessing their campaigns before Pete Buttigieg. But it's a strange business, you know. Well, you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist, but it helps to think that Elizabeth Warren is still in the race to knock out Bernie Sanders or to help knock out Bernie Sanders. And that uh, she will carry on for as long as she can do that for the good of the party. Is Is that a fair assessment? I think every candidate in this race probably fancies themselves as the Bernie killer, so to speak. They all want to be the the alternative to Bernie Sanders. You know, I think that, you know, it's funny. The Warren campaign says they have a path that's a narrow path, but it's a path. You know, something I'll point out to you is that Massachusetts, her home state, and Minnesota, Klobuchar's home state, are both Super Tuesday states. And I think both of them kind of want to take a shot at seeing if they can win their home states, which, Mm. by the way, it's not a sure bet. The latest polls show them fighting neck and neck with Sanders in both of their home states. And Sanders is leading in states like California and Texas, the largest Super Tuesday states, by very wide margins. But if they can beat him in their home states, they'll go into the convention with some delegates. Maybe they'll pick off a few more delegates here and there. And assuming... If Sanders comes into the convention without a majority, you know, one never knows what could happen. And so it's good to have some pledged delegates in your back pocket if you can get them. And, uh, well, Donald Trump has made it quite clear what he thinks. He thinks that Buttigieg will, all of his voters will go to, and his delegates will go towards Biden um, as part of the Stop Bernie effort. Where do you think Buttigieg voters will go now? Well, you know, 
Mayor Pete was very much in the moderate camp. He was a corporate, you know, he had a lot of billionaires. He had supporting him. He was he famously had the fundraiser in the wine cave. Yeah. He's been yeah. in talks with Joe Biden. That has been confirmed that the they the campaigns have reached out. Um, and he's been very, very vocal about how he doesn't think Sanders should get the nomination, even in his concession speech. Um, he talked about how Sanders would be a huge risk to the party. So the logical assumption is that some the bulk of Pete's voters will go to Biden. I think that Biden's win in South Carolina suggests that he is really the moderate alternative. No other candidate has soundly defeated Bernie Sanders in a state except Biden. And Biden crushed. He won, I believe, outright. I didn't check the final tally, but I believe it was an outright majority. Yes. And so if anyone can claim mantle to the moderate alternative to Sanders, it's Biden now. And I think the people who supported Pete were looking for the moderate alternative to Sanders. And, you know, that, although there's also Bloomberg, you know, the, well, that's the what wild I was, card that's, Bloomberg. That's what I was going to ask is that, I mean, people all, often talked about how Buttigieg voters were the kind of McKinsey consultant class of voter. Yes. Uh, and I would have thought that type of voter might be quite drawn to big money Bloomberg. Right. Well, I was just saying how, in the 2020 primary, McKinsey is more toxic than Castro. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, my hunch is that Buttigieg will probably throw in for Biden. That's my, you know, I, I base that on nothing but just my gut. But, you know, I also know that Bloomberg is going to come bearing gifts. Yeah. And I don't know what form those gifts will take, but... You know, our, our former mayor here in New York has a very long history of opening up the checkbook when he needs to get things done. And if you look at just the endorsements he's rolled up in the past few weeks, it's just it's all these mayors who've been beneficiaries of his philanthropies. It's all you can tie it back to his just voluminous spending across the country in, in cities everywhere. And so I'm sure that there will be some pitch to Pete from the Bloomberg people. For an 11th hour endorsement, but I don't know what form that could take. Well, and it's widely speculated that the Biden campaign has already made a pitch to Pete like, if not vice president, some very senior role in a Biden administration. Have you heard anything about that? That would be my logical assumption. I have not been explicitly told that by anyone, you know, since Pete dropped out because it's, it's all still rolling very quickly. But it's kind of necessary for Pete because if he goes back to Indiana, there's not a logical place for him to go. You know, it's a red state. He was the mayor of a small town, but a Senate seat in Indiana or the governorship or Mike Pence is a former governor of Indiana. It's a very tough road for a Democrat to rise up in that state. So the, if he wants to continue to have a national career, he's going to need to be offered a serious position by the eventual Democratic nominee, whether that's vice president or some kind of cabinet post. I don't know. But he certainly, I think, is, is thinking about those things. Well, let's talk about Pete's rise, because, I mean, it is, even if it has ended now, it's still quite an extraordinary story that this totally unheard of mayor is now a, a national figure. And that's what a presidential campaign can do, even if it fails, right? Well, right. I mean, it's, you know, I, the joke I tell you, it's not about whether you win or lose. It's about the Twitter followers you get along the way. <laughs> and, you know, if you look at where Mayor Pete was two years ago and where he is now, it's night and day. And he the best thing you can do for your career is run for president, whatever your career. Like, whoever heard of Andrew Yang? Yeah. Even Marianne yeah. Williamson got a new bit of life and whatever she should choose to do. Yeah. So, and Donald Trump became president. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And, and Donald Trump, you know, and what was, you know, he became president. And, and, you know, there are reports that he only threw his hat into the ring 
sort of to get a better deal in contract negotiations for The Apprentice. Yeah. And then we see how that went. So I think I think Pete definitely will have a national role in America. And he's very young. Remember, he's a millennial. I forget. He used to always talk about how old he would if he ran for president when he was Donald Trump's age. And it was like 2040 something, some insane <laughs> number like that. I forget exactly. But he's very young. He's a millennial and he will come back and he has a long way to go. It's easier for him to drop out, I think, because yes. he knows there'll be fights down the road. For someone like Warren, I think she knows this is probably it. Yes, she's 70, isn't she? Yeah. Yes. The, the youngest one, the, the youngest pup in the race at 70 now, I think. Right, right. You know, Biden's now the youngest man in the Democratic race running. Yeah, yeah. And what about the hatred that Buttigieg inspired? It was quite intense. I mean, it was. I suppose the Bernie bros, uh, Bernie Sanders fans didn't like him at all. A lot of gay people seemed to react very angrily towards him, which was odd because, of course, he is a married man, a man married to another man. Right. Well, the Bernie bros, I'll just say, hate everybody that's not Bernie. So their <laughs> hatred is to be expected. But you, you touch on a fascinating point, which is you have a man who would be the first gay president, a, a tremendous milestone of achievement in, in LGBT equality and rights and representation and all these things, you know, liberals talk about. And yet he was savaged by many elements of, you know, of left wing LGBT people. You know, there were some critical articles in LGBT media, Advocate, Out Magazine, these places. You know, I always used to say there was like a genre of article called Mayor Pete isn't gay enough or not the right kind of gay. And this this a, 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 an article in this genre came out roughly every month in some outlet. And it all had, you know, basically... It all had to sort of do with this sort of intersectional, well, you know, because Pete is not left enough, he's betraying the LGBT movement and he's he's a corporate and he's not. People sort of lost the forest through the trees, I think. Yes. With him. And so. And, you know, and there, were, there were objections to the fact that he was quite conservative in his homosexuality. I mean, he he, right. I think they, he married they, his only boyfriend. They, and... he, they hated that he was basically in a committed monogamous relationship and, you know was boring. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't on a fire Island parade float wearing assless chaps. And I think that there is an element of LGBT advocacy and and activists who won't be happy with, with a gay president short of that, which is, you know, unfortunate. Yes. And looking ahead to what would happen if Buttigieg were to have a senior position in a future administration, do you, you can see him running in 2024 or, or f- even further down the line, as you say? You know, I don't know. I mean, it really depends. So much depends on the outcome of 2020. Because obviously, if if Bernie Sanders wins, well, then again, I mean, if Bernie Sanders wins, you're going to see a president running for re-election at 82, mm. which would be a very novel thing. Um, and given Bernie's age, who he picks for vice president is going to be a very fraught decision. I think that Pete can't just sit around. I don't know what he will do. Maybe he'll become the head of a big nonprofit. Maybe he will. He has to continue to stay in advocacy. I think that it would, if, if a Democrat does take the White House in 2020, there will definitely be some kind of role for him in that administration. But it's hard to say what. There's been a bit of speculation about what he talked to Jimmy. He had a sit down with Jimmy Carter and what those two talked about. The speculation is that he, he kind of told him that the party needs you to stand down now and... Uh... And that would be true. But that's not quite Carter's role in these things normally, is it? 
Well, you know, as a former president, Democratic president, Carter is always going to be relevant and whatever he says and thinks about the contest will be relevant. And, you know, he didn't have the best presidency, but, yeah, you know, yeah. he's distinguished himself in his post-presidency with his humanitarian work. And he's still a very respected leader in the party. You know, you'll notice how he, he lives very simply. He doesn't run around giving very expensive paid speeches. I think Pete recognized that there is a collective action problem, which is that they all want to stop Bernie, but they all want it themselves. <laughs> and and he kind of took a very bold step, which is he said, I'm going to be the first to go because I know I really can't win it. Mm. I'm not going to try to just get some delegates and make a play at the convention. I'm out and I'm out. And it's especially after Super Tuesday, it's going to be very hard for me to see why some of these other people like Klobuchar and Warren stay in. Let's talk about Super Tuesday, because, I mean, it seems there's, there's three likely stories that will emerge. One is that it's uh, afterwards. One is that Bernie's got it now. He's, he's unstoppable. Two is that Biden is, is back in it now. Uh, and three is that maybe Bloomberg will win it in a brokered convention. I'm sure there are many other variabilities, but right. those it's are terrible. three big ones. The permutations are, 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 are maddening. Yeah. Well, I, I, was, I was saying how actually... Brokered conventions are one of those things we talk about every four years and then they never happen. Yeah. It's like, this is going to be the year, folks. It's going to be this. If this is this is. And if we didn't have one with Trump, I just we're not going to have one. Yeah, there's a lot of institutional pressure for the parties to sew these up before the convention for a lot of reasons. No one wants to go back to like, I don't even know when the last brokered one, maybe the 60s, 68. I know it was it was a very contentious one. And. Like, it's really not within a living memory, and no one wants to even see it. Mm. So, you know, it's hard to say. Bernie could sew it up. Bernie could. They've got to get 15% in the states to be awarded delegates. I mean, in each sort of congressional district. They've got to hit 15% or they're not going to be considered. So, you know, with Pete leaving the race, it makes it more likely that some moderates will be able to clear that field. And actually, it makes it more likely that you will get a brokered convention. But because there'll be more people splitting the delegates, potentially. Yeah. But, um, you know, I don't know. I could also see a situation where Bloomberg gets almost zero. Yes. And he just, he's hovering at 15 percent. You know, if, if we get a margin of error situation that puts him two points lower than that, he could he could come up short in virtually, you know, every state. And you don't get delegates at 14 percent. The, the only reason why Bloomberg might have a good day tomorrow is that um, so far everything has seemed to have fallen perfectly in line for Trump, I would say. And I would say tomorrow, Bloomberg doing well might be exactly what Trump would like, because it increases the level of chaos. It stops Biden creating well, a comeback Trump narrative. Trump enjoys the chaos. I yeah. think that, although, you know, everyone, everyone always assumes that chaos is a bad thing. And I would point you to the 2016 Republican primary, which was the most chaotic, insane thing, it's certainly in, that I've ever seen. Yes. So, you know, yeah, there's a lot of chaos right now in the GOP primary at the same time. I think, you know, it will eventually become a runaway train. And I think, you know, they all made a big show of saying at the debate, well, if someone comes into the convention without a majority, we're not necessarily going to support that person because, you know, the superdelegates are going to get involved. And, but I think that if Sanders emerges with a very strong plurality not a majority but a strong plurality you can't stop him and if they try to take it away at the convention the bernie bros will riot yes because they'll, they'll have, and they'll have a lot of cause 
I do find it quite interesting that both Warren and Biden are using this line that you don't get to make up the rules after the game's begun. Uh, it strikes me as slightly rich coming, particularly from Warren, who's talked a lot about how Clinton won the popular vote and how you know the Electoral College needs to be reformed and so on. It seems like they're prepping the ground for uh, pinching back of the nomination from Sanders. Maybe Bloomberg should have said that to Warren when she was going at him on the NDAs. You know, well, we had an established system and those are the rules and we have to change the rules when we're doing them. I mean, right. It's a very convenient position for her to hold, obviously, because her only chance at getting the nomination is through some brokered convention chicanery. Or, you know, maybe she'll try to swing herself a vice presidential spot. Who knows? But. If it does go to a second ballot, it's all it's it's wild west because you're going to have these 600 superdelegates who can influence the result on the second ballot. Mm. And you look at someone like Bloomberg when we go back to the checkbook, you know, you don't know. And, you know, I, he's not, I don't think he's just going to hand bags of cash with dollar signs on them. But I do think it'll be like, oh, your wife, you're a superdelegate. Oh, I see your wife runs this nonprofit. Here's a donation to the nonprofit. There are ways of sort of seeding the ground in, in, in more indirect ways. But yeah, it, it's very rich. It's a self-serving position. If she was in Bernie's position, she would want the plurality. There'd be reversed. No question. And uh, there's a lot of talk about how 2020 Democratic race seems like it's running along the same lines as the 2016 Republican one did. But now there seems to be another argument coming up that actually, you know, the Democrats have greater party discipline. They have more willingness to stop the revolution taking over their own party. What do you think? Well, I think the parallels are very, very interesting. I mean, Sanders and Trump are both sort of people with committed 30 percent supporters. And it's not enough in a head to head contest, but in a very divided field, it can be enough. The Democrats, I mean, I mean, what it comes back to with Democrats is they do have the superdelegates. And Republicans didn't have superdelegates. If Republicans had superdelegates in 2016, Donald Trump might not have been the nominee. Yeah. For our British listeners, can you explain a bit about right. superdelegates, who they are, how it works? Right. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. So superdelegates are basically, they're, they're delegates in the same, the, 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 the people who the candidates are competing for right now in each of these states, but they're not won by the candidates. They're made up of various party insiders. Republicans don't have it. Only Democrats have it. And I mean, the best way to describe it is it's basically a check on the popular enthusiasms of the public. You know, I would I would say maybe they're almost a House of Lords type yes. vote in that they are not elected by anybody. They're party insiders. And their job is to make sure that the party nominates the quote unquote right kind of candidate to run. And, you know, you know, Hillary Clinton beat Bernie Sanders. She beat him fair and square. But, you know, in the beginning, she had all the superdelegates lined up behind her. So she was able to run that race as a strong favorite throughout mm. because she had the superdelegates behind her. She still beat him in the elected delegates, but she was always had this imprimatur of the front runner and the institutional advantage, which the Sanders people still complain about. I've, it's funny for Brits because um, it's sort of the opposite of what happens in our party system where the there aren't superdelegates, but the MPs will choose... Uh, the candidates, and then it goes out to the membership to vote on them. In America, it's the sort of it's, with superdelegates, it's the opposite way, isn't it? It's that the the elite can reimpose its will on the members or the voters. All right, and you know, in this after 2016, 
the big brouhaha, the DNC agreed that they would not have superdelegates take any part in 2020 unless a candidate came into the convention without a majority. Yeah. And then they had to go to a second vote, you know, and then there's like 600 superdelegates that come into play. So if Bernie can win it outright, he wins it outright. But in previous years, what you would have had is a situation where, you know, the superdelegates can tip it in favor of someone who didn't win the majority. And mm. it is a check. It is a check on the popular enthusiasms. And if the popular enthusiasms put Sanders into that position, you do not think that the democratic machine will break its own rules? No. I think if Sanders wins it, he wins it. And I think in the same way, Republican, the Republican machine hated Trump. They hated every single day he was the nominee. Because they all said, oh, he can't win. Hillary's going to crush him. That's what everyone thought. So the Republican machine tried to stop Trump, and they, they knew they couldn't. They knew that, you know, if you... If you take away the rightful nominee and you and you and you subvert the will of the voters, it you'll you'll depress turnout and you're you're a guaranteed loser. And so I think that if the party bosses just give it to Bloomberg at the eleventh hour, it would get very ugly and people won't vote. People are going to be depressed. And you could spend five billion. You could spend ten billion dollars. I mean, it's just you're not going to be able to repair that kind of ill feeling. Well, John, thank you for taking us through it. And uh, please join us again soon. Anytime, anytime. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite.